0: (laughs) today zombie bears ethnic minorities and a philosophy of monstrosity i'm cliff mark and this is good in theory Welcome to the Good in Theory Halloween edition. Today we have Paul Segar from King's College London back with us. And uh, Paul, you have a spooky thought experiment for me today. I certainly do, Cliff.
1: I'd like you to imagine two different scenarios. In the first scenario, you're being chased through the woods by a very hungry grizzly bear. Okay. How does that make you feel?
0: I'm very afraid. You're very funny. Uh, if I'm not already dead, my heart's pounding, I'm running as fast as I can, I'm trying to think whether I'm supposed to climb trees or supposed to make a lot of noise and like look big. I don't know, but uh, you know, I may have soiled myself, and I'm on my way out of there.
1: Okay, that, that all sounds pretty reasonable. Try this scenario, scenario two. You're faced with the bear from the movie Annihilation, which is not only a grizzly bear, but it looks to be half dead because its face seems to be rotting off as it walks towards you. And every time it opens its mouth, rather than growling like a grizzly bear, the voices of dead people that it's eaten start emerging. <laughs> How do you feel
0: about this bear? I got I to tell you, Paul, I don't, feel, I don't feel very good about this bear. I feel... Okay, so I think this is interesting because this bear is obviously also scary. I also want to get away from it, but... Zombie bear with the voices of dead of dead human victims coming out of its mouth does not produce the same sensation in me as regular grizzly bear.
1: Right, absolutely.
0: It's creepy. It's unnatural. In this case, I think there's more of a chance I have like a kind of disgusted fascination, but I'm also. I don't I don't think of a grizzly bear as a disgusting or repellent being in itself. But the zombie bear is an aberration and should not exist in our world and it's making me feel very uncomfortable in a way that isn't just isn't just fear
1: right there's something else about this right you're afraid in both scenarios but in the second scenario there's there's like the hair stands up on the back of your neck there's a sense of you want to get away from this not just because it might eat you but because it's it it has something about it which is intrinsically more disturbing and threatening it's hard to even find the words to describe it. It's not right. Yeah, it's, it's just gross. not right. It's, it's not yeah. <laughs> right. And, and, and the words that are sometimes used to describe this feeling are the uncanny or creepiness, or that, that has lots of different meanings, in uh-huh. different contexts, or sometimes the German word unheimlich. Um, but this idea of, of not right, there's something wrong about this. And, and it makes me feel deeply, not queasy, but unsettled in a way that goes beyond physical fear. There's something else about the zombie bear. And the question then is, why? What's going on here? Why is this one so much more disturbing than the first? Because it can't just be fear. Because, yeah, we're afraid in both cases, but we're not afraid in the same kind of ways.
0: I fully get the distinction about why zombie bears are scary in a different way than regular bears. And I can think of other examples, like why haunted houses and monsters are frightening in a different way than war or natural disasters. But... I don't know if I can get much further in explaining why than to just say that some are kind of unnatural and creepy and don't belong in this world and others are just fearsome. So, I mean, your thought experiment, uh, what do you think? Good. So I I have a theory about what sets apart
1: what we might tentatively call monsters, although that's a broad category and it's not clear this theory is going to explain all monsters, but monsters (laughs) like the zombie bear, or some more traditional depictions of things like Dracula or or uh-huh. th- to use an example from one of my favorite living philosophers, David Livingston Smith, he has this idea of a dog that is running towards you. And as it gets closer, you realize it has the head of a lizard. Um, these, yeah, these kinds of things that make you <laughs> feel like, oh, this isn't right. And that, that, that feeling you were trying to put into words of there's something not right about this as a violation of the natural order. I think that's pretty accurate. I think that in these kinds of cases, what's m- being messed with is our intuitive sense that there are certain categories that should never be violated, and certainly shouldn't be mixed together. And when they are mixed together, we really don't like it. We have a very strong intuitive gut reaction.
0: Okay. Let me just ask you, before we really jump into the details of this theory, is this something you mentioned is coming from like some other research you were doing on something else?
1: Yeah, So, so I've been working away on, on a, a big project to do with why, why we might consider that all human beings are equal and some very foundational Uh moral senses. I hope that all your listeners agree. But putting that aside, uh, what I've been interested in recently is the idea of psychological essentialism. Which is a theory about how human beings process the world and why we tend to think the world divides up into neat categories, and probably why we don't like it when those categories are violated. And so the background here is is this wider theory called psychological essentialism, which is very interesting once you once you pick it, pick into the details.
0: Okay, then I want to pick into the details. So this is going to mean a little theoretical detour. Let's figure out what psychological essentialism is, and then we'll uh, come back and see what it has to do with monsters. So let's break it down and start with um, what is essentialism?
1: So it helps to think about it in terms that we might be familiar with already. So there's a famous legal verdict that it may not be possible to define pornography, but you sure know it when you see it. There's a sense there that it's got something about it, a certain kind of quality that makes it not just erotica uh, or not just sort of some some other form of art, but but pornography has a kind of, there's an essence to it that we kind of
0: know, we know it when we see it. So you're talking about back in the 80s, there were all these legal battles over pornography and obscenity and, you know, they want to outlaw porn. And the trouble is, if you're a judge and you're trying to give a definition of it, you say, I don't know, shows nudity, there's sex in it, people are getting horny. Uh, No matter what definition you give, it winds up picking up things that don't seem like porn. So old, sexy novels, Victorian novels, um, erotica, stuff like that,
1: right? Good. So they meet all the definitional criteria that are proposed of porn – but everyone knows that that wasn't porn. I. But equally, most people know porn when they see it. They know the difference. Another one might be, you know, what makes somebody funny? You know, we all have friends who are, you know, who like that's a, that, you know, like a bit like in Goodfellas. Ah, uh-huh. oh, you're a funny guy, Tommy. You're a funny guy. But it's very hard to say what makes somebody funny. Okay, they make you laugh, but that's not really the essence of somebody having a, a being. A, a, not just not just someone who
0: is funny, right? Like there's. There's people they could tell the exact same joke or do the same kinds of jokes. One is funny, yeah. one person has it. Yes, yeah, yeah. And one doesn't.
1: A, and some people have that kind of essence of being funny, of, of being able to uh-huh. make people laugh. And and it's hard to put your finger on exactly what that is, but you know there's something about them. You know there's something there. Um so uh-huh. the, the essence is often the thing that gives gives something its nature. And and often it's hard to identify it. But we all kind of know it when we see it.
0: How about, I, I'm thinking, you know, obviously I did a lot of stuff on Plato and Republic. So like, I'm a thinking immediately of how Socrates describes the forms in the Republic. So it's something like, you know, all empirical houses participate in the form of the house or, you know, all trees, there's a form of the tree and everything else is kind of, reflection of it, or...
1: Exactly, so Plato is one of the most prominent philosophical essentialists in the Western tradition. He is exactly Mm -hmm. saying that, look, it's not just the idea of funniness or porn, it's everything. Everything has deep inside of it, an essence that makes it that thing what it is. And in Plato's phrase, it's according to these essences that we can carve nature at its joints. And this is Mm -hmm. the idea that the world, the natural world, prior to our observing it or meddling with it or interpreting it, has certain
0: divisions built into it? Okay, fine. The world has divisions built into it, uh, but why are we dividing it up in terms of essences? Why isn't it based on, say, external characteristics? So instead of saying humans are the beings that have a human essence, why don't we just say humans are rational animals or language using animals or featherless bipeds, or something like that, right? What does this have so, to do so with So the
1: essentialist essence? response to that is, but what determines whether something stays in a category or not is not simply its physical surface manifestation. Because there's something inside it that, determine, that, it, that can help determine what it looks like. Essences tend to encourage certain manifestations, but those manifestations are defeasible, as in they don't necessarily have to occur and for the thing to still stay what it fundamentally is. So a kind of interesting uh-huh. way to, to explore this idea is one that psychologists have used with children, because it turns out the children are very, very committed to essentialism. And to so uh-huh. say, t- take a porcupine. Right? Now, we can define a porcupine, like you just said, Cliff, You know, in terms of its external characteristics. It's black yeah, it has and white, prickly, and quills. It prickly quills, and it, you know, it, lives, it lives in Africa. Well, some of them do anyway. It pisses
0: um, 10 feet to mate with, uh, on its mates.
1: I didn't know that, but I'll take your word. I
0: I wrote an article on weird animal mating rituals and the porcupine stuff is all about pee. But well, there know, from we a go. Great distance, like. From but like the trees. Okay, so I take. Wow. So, we, so, anyway, so, we, so We've on. got yeah. our
1: definition of porcupines based on our empirical study of porcupines. But then, if I take, if, if we find this creature, this porcupine that uh, has suffered a tragic um, accident and can no longer pee ten feet onto its mates, um, and, and even worse, it, 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 it's for some reason all its quills have fallen out, and it's it's fallen into a bog and it's now covered in green slime instead of being black and white, so it no longer fits the category of porcupine according to your empirical observation of porcupine features. But that, surely it hasn't stopped being a porcupine.
0: Okay, so appearances aren't everything. The reason we have to resort to essences is because even if something doesn't look like it should according to the definitions, then it still might have the essence of a porcupine. It still might be the thing.
1: Right, exactly, yeah. yeah. So, so, so the idea here is that surface manifestations can be a clue to essences, but essences, the what's on the inside or what's fundamental, and they determine category membership. So if we really okay. want to carve nature at its joints, it's not enough to simply be an empiricist and go around counting off the, the, the observable features because observable features can be misleading. You have to go deeper, and to go deeper, you have to find the essence. The essence is what determines whether something is one kind of thing or a different uh-huh. kind of thing.
0: Good. And what does that all have to do with monsters?
1: Well, what seems to be going on potentially with monsters is that they offend our intuitive sense that things have essences and that there are natural categories which shouldn't be violated, which delineate how nature itself is, why it should be carved at the joints in these ways. So to go back to our example of the zombie bear, bears to our minds are a specific kind of animal that has sort of beariness inside them. And they're not supposed to be dead, right? Bears are part of the living animal kingdom and they're supposed to be alive. They're not supposed
0: to be. And it's supposed and to growl, it's not supposed to say. <laughs> when they're
1: supposed to growl, they're not supposed to scream the dying words of their last meal, right? That's not what bears are supposed to be. This zombie bear seems to be a violation of multiple different things that we think should be separate that have been shoved together. So one mm. potential explanation here is that this messes with our intuitive sense of how the world is composed, and gives us that sense of this exactly as you put it earlier, Cliff. This is unnatural. There's something not right about this. And one clue uh-huh. here is that it's screwing with our idea of the essence of the creature. The bear shouldn't be behaving like that. So it's not just scary because it might eat me. It's it's. Not right. It doesn't belong. It shouldn't be uh-huh. here at all. When it's opening its mouth and making those kinds of human noises of pain and misery.
0: Right. So that's maybe the same kind of thing in The Exorcist when the little girl starts talking in her deep adult uh, demon voice, and that's really scary. Exactly. It's it's messing with two categories there, uh, or, or or in
1: um, or, or the traditional view of the vampire. So. Traditionally, if you read Bram Stoker's account of Dracula, you know when he's uh-huh. cold to the touch because he is undead. And you notice undead is a category violation. It's not dead because yeah. it's walking around and talking. Yeah. It's not. It's not living. alive. Undead is a specific deliberate category violation in our imagination uh-huh. so dracula's cold to the touch he's clammy he makes people shiver in the early descriptions the, the 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 sort of person who's traveled to transylvania see dracula open the window at the top of his tower and crawl down the front of the building head first on all fours like a sort of lizard you know the original yeah. the, the vamp- and the vampire you know, turns into a bat that's not right Pe- people supposed to be people humans not bats they're not supposed to do both. They're not supposed to sleep in coffins because dead people sleep in coffins. Humans are supposed to sleep in beds. you know,
0: Right. So there's at least a couple of category violations that Dracula does that might make him more scary. So there's the living dead thing, like a zombie, which we talked about. But especially in the older portrayals of Dracula, there's also this violation of the division between human and animal. So... Dracula is presented as climbing down the wall on all fours vertically. He's very animalistic in the old movie Nosferatu, right? He's a horrifying, disgusting kind of being, sleeping in dirt. There are rats everywhere. And so I think that's interesting because he's a much more disgusting, animalistic kind of monster in the old versions. And that's very different from the more recent sexy Tom Cruise, Brad Pitt, and then Twilight versions of the vampire.
1: Yeah, of course. And there's an interesting question there about what's happened to the trope of the vampire. And that's probably cultural, that that something's gone on there. I would argue uh-huh. personally that the vampires in Twilight are not monsters because they are more like sort of aliens they're kind of like Uh weird humans who live forever and try to seduce teenagers they're no longer we call them vampires but it's sort of cheating it's sort of playing on the long established cultural trope but but the author of twilight whoever that was has removed everything about them that made them monstrous and they're now they're they're more they're more like more like aliens the, they could the still monsters. be
0: dangerous. They're more like yeah. bears than zombie bears. Right,
1: exactly. They've become more like, they're like like moody, seductive bears rather than zombie yeah. bears. <laughs> yeah. So, 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 so I think that's quite interesting because otherwise, because we can do things with the category of monster. It doesn't have to stay static and it, uh-huh. evol- it can evolve over time. But I do wonder if you take, if you stop doing the category violations and, and you stop, you turn it from a zombie bear into just a regular bear, I'm tempted to say that you might call it a vampire but it's not really a monster anymore. It's not what vampires used to be.
0: Okay, so give me some other kinds of category violations aside from alive-dead that are also scary or uncanny or creepy.
1: So the, the Livingston Smith example of the lizard dog, um, two different creatures simultaneously as one. Uh, so traditionally in in mythology... Uh, mermaids are a good example mermaids have traditionally Uh been dangerous monsters but also what makes them monstrous is it's half fish half female Um, and that you again that can evolve that can be presented as something like the little mermaid who's who's not really a monster anymore she's kind of cutesy Mm -hmm. Uh, but traditionally mermaids were, were very much monsters so mixing of two different species that seems a very strong category violation that our brains don't like and um, the dead and the undead as you've already said uh, is a very very strong one and um, the artificial and the living so things that are alive should have been organic and always been alive and not have died in between and come back to life that's creepy and weird um, but uh-huh. things that are like puppets and dolls that take on human-like characteristics and start Acting a little bit like people, as though they're alive, but they're also inanimate. That's a fairly common sight for this kind of sense of creepiness and and something unheimlich and something weird. That's why often people find doll collections creepy, or or mm-hmm. the, the example of Chucky, the character um, from the from the '80s movie. Uh, that that's another quite common one.
0: Um, so yeah, okay. So I I have a quick question about these category violations because. On the one hand, it does seem plausible to me that when things like mix essences, they're part animal, part human, that can be creepy and scary. But it's also not really enough, right? Because there are things that cross these lines that aren't scary. You mentioned mermaids. Sometimes they're cute. And, you know, if you teach a monkey to smoke, that's fun. (laughs) (laughs) Or at least it was once upon a time.
1: And yeah, yeah, so exactly. So I think it probably has to... First to elicit, I think the eliciting that sense of horror or uncanniness or unheimlich probably just requires the category violation. But we can get used to the category violation if we're exposed to it enough. Uh We can stop treating it as a category violation, or, or or maybe not. It can stop bothering us. But if it comes along with the threat of danger, if the thing seems hostile or likely to do us harm then uh-huh. I think that kind of sort of reinforces each okay, other. Okay, but why do kind of,
0: mixed essences and category violations upset us in the first place?
1: Uh, it's just something wrong about that. There seems to be a very, uh, there seems to be a common, and it's uh, interestingly, the research so far done, and there needs to be more, but what has been done, seems to indicate this is pretty universal. It seems to be cross-cultural. This doesn't seem to be an artifact of, say, just Western culture. These kinds of violating natural categories by which we basically mean things that are determined by the essence that makes them what they are, that allows us to carve nature of their joints. When we mess with those categories, it really bugs us. Like it tends to make us upset and give us that feeling of...
0: Ugh. And when you mix it with, the, with physical threat, it, it gets nasty. So to summarize, we're talking about essentialism that says the world's divided up into different categories, different species, alive, dead. There's monkeys, there's men, but there's no monkey men. And when something does violate categories like that, um, it upsets us. That's why things are scary.
1: It's why some things are scary. It's why some things give us that sense of creepiness or horror or whatever you want to call it. It's not a purpose. This theory won't explain everything, but it seems to me to get at something important about what's going on. Okay, that's essentialism. But why is it psychological essentialism? Right, so this is the kicker. Remember we we've we started talking about psychological essentialism, but then we started basically talking about essentialism as though essentialism were true. The kicker is that essentialism is false, right? Things do not have essences, right? You're saying that there's no fish essence different than a man essence? Absolutely not. Since the Darwinian revolution <laughs> in biological science, we know for a fact that there are no essences that determine species membership. And it's no good saying, oh, but what about DNA? Which is the classic response uh-huh. that people like you and me who don't actually know anything about science will say, but it has fish DNA, not horse DNA. Therefore, it's a fish, not a horse. But of course, those are just words that we, we use to make it sound superficially scientifically respectable we don't know what dna is you and i cliff i mean a biologist will but we don't what we actually mean is it has fishiness on the inside and i'm going to yeah. reach for the scientific <laughs> lingo in my you know cultural matrix and i'm going to call it dna i don't actually know what that means and what's interesting um, here is it's the power of our intuitions presenting itself as kind of tracking the world and reaching for justification because we think that the world is divided up into these natural kinds there are trees and there are sparrows uh. and there are porcupines and that's because you know look at the world you can just see that they're out there they're different kinds of things right
0: right right right, right. why
1: they're different well because because they are right because there's bits of them uh, not the same as other bits and it doesn't matter if you take all its quills out and cover it in green slime it's still a porcupine because it has porcupine yeah. on the inside yeah, 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 yeah. but this is all going on in our heads if you talk to biolo- biologists like scientists real scientists they'll tell Uh you that species classification is incredibly complex it actually changes based on different contexts it's not simply about dna it's not simply about which animals can reproduce with with other animals it's much more complicated than that and there are no hard and fast distinctions between species in the animal world But we find that so difficult to accept and so difficult to believe because we are psychological essentialists. We interpret the world as though it has firm categories, even though in fact it doesn't. But why do we do that? So there's a good evolutionary explanation for why we think the world is made up of categories that exist according to nature, according to simple essences that determine what they're supposed to be like because it allows us to navigate the world very, very, very quickly because most things that superficially look the same are members of the same categories and they tend to behave in the same kinds of ways over time. So, you know, if you think, oh, well, that big orange and black cat that ate a member of my tribe last week, oh, there's another one that looks just like it. Um, I wonder if this one would like a belly rub. You know, creatures that reason like that, They don't don't hang around, right? Creatures that go, that thing is the same kind of thing as that thing. Those things are all the same and they all behave in the same kind of way because they have something that makes them that category of thing. There's obvious evolutionary adaptative reasons why human beings would have been rigged up this way. But it doesn't make it true. It doesn't mean that the world is like that. It just means that it's been very advantageous for us to think that the world is like that.
0: Okay, so we have got like a... uh... Darwinianly motivated Kantianism, right? <laughs> so because yeah. of evolutionary reasons, because of the primordial tiger that eats us, uh, there's this pressure to start dividing up the world into categories. We can make generalizations, and um, we start thinking in terms of essences. That's how we think the world is. But then uh, when we send out our scientists with their clipboards <laughs> and their microscopes and they break down the data, they find out that, all these categories that we've been thinking in terms of all these categories that we've been putting on the world, they're not tenable at all, right? Well that's exactly exactly what you said there. It's we put them on the world.
1: That's exactly the right way, to of it. It's us projecting onto the world fixed categories that nature does not actually contain prior to our interpretation.
0: So science is how a lot of people think astrology is, right? So <laughs> the zodiac signs, they're uh they are projections on the right. world, there are a set of categories that help you navigate your everyday life, um, but when scientists go and look for evidence of them, of personality differences correlated to uh, when you're born, it's hard to find them. And that makes some people think that these categories don't exist in the universe at all signs of the zodiac are an
1: extremely essentialist way of thinking that people have on their inside something that makes them a certain kind of character right they've all got human essence that's why they're humans but that one was born at this time of year so it's got libra essence and that one's got cancer essence and that one's got scorpio essence and that's why they behave in different ways that's why they manifest with different characters. And, of course, it's all nonsense. And if you've got a Scorpio walking human- around
0: trying to act like a Pisces, you're like, that's yeah. something messed up about <laughs> <Right>? this person.
1: <laughs> so, of course, like, obviously, there's, it's, it's all nonsense, but it's very appealing to human psychology because it appears to explain the world through a division of categories which are hidden but determine ex- external manifestation of certain traits, in this case, character traits.
0: Are you saying that all these categories—zodiac, uh, scientific, zoological—every uh, category just exists only in our minds and not in the world? So they certainly don't just
1: exist in your mind, right? I'm not. I'm not taking an extreme philosophical position that this is all a projection of our minds. That this is there's simply a blob of undifferentiated matter, and everything is just being projected onto it. The point is that the distinctions between these things are not neat and sharp and there aren't singular properties inside our different members of different supposed categories that determine their category membership. That if you, it's not just biology, if you talk to physicists and chemists, it turns out that even elements and compounds like water when you get into the nitty gritty of what makes something water, it's not as simple as H2O because H2O can have all kinds of different ways of being manifested. I don't actually understand the science, but I've read enough people who do who've explained it to me and made it clear that nobody who is working in this area you know, today anymore believes that there are essences.
0: So you can tell me that all the scientists have decided that there's no essences, they can't find any, and I believe you. But I still can't help but think that way, right? None of us can.
1: I I think that's an actual baseline truth. that that we And and it's probably for the best that we can't stop thinking like that. You wouldn't be able to function on a daily basis. But...
0: But. (laughs) But even though this is useful, uh, politics. And what I mean is we have this ability to think in categories and essences, and we can mess with that to create monsters that are fun to watch in the cinema. But... It might also be the case that we can use the same mechanism for some pretty, uh, to create some pretty nasty political effects. Am I right?
1: So the most sort of disturbing way that our social construction of categories can get coupled with our belief that things have essences is when malicious political forces start trying to convince, say, one group of people that another group of people are not what they seem. So on the face of it we've all got the human essence right because okay now that's not scientifically supportable but it's intuitively something we probably all kind of believe well right you know so the classic south park episode gingers don't have souls right it's supposed to be a kind of funny joke because it's kind of toying with this idea that they look human but they're not really right and south park are being stupid and like they're just doing what south park do but of course that way of thinking about it Has been manipulated into some pretty horrendous ends in human history, and it's not too hard to find
0: examples. So the the like, I think immediately of uh, wartime propaganda, these posters where the Japanese are like have big teeth and are look like animals or snakes or like uh, anti-Semitic propaganda all the time. They're they're cockroaches or snakes or rats, stuff like this, right? Exactly.
1: So so if you look at Nazi propaganda about the Jews, for example, they're often depicted as part cockroach part rat they have simultaneously the features of a human but also a vermin and one thing that's signaling to the intended so-called Aryan audience is these Jews they may look like they're human on the outside but they're not on the inside they're something else what's inside that putatively human creature that lives next door is maybe a rat or a cockroach and that is really dangerous. That's what David Livingston Smith, the philosopher I mentioned earlier, describes as the beginning of dehumanization, where you start to claim that a certain group of people don't have the human essence. They have some other kind of essence. Like the lizard people that rule us now, right? Well, for example, right? It's a sort of, you say, it, say it's an sort of example, but it's got, it's pulling in the same intuitive direction. That our rulers are not really... Us, they're a malevolent force that's pretending to be us. And of course, why this is really powerful in human psychology is that... Firstly, you're turning these people into monsters. When you start talking about Jews or gypsies or any other persecuted group as cockroaches or or vermin... You start to say it's not really human. It's a kind of monster. Because things with mixed essences don't belong in nature. And things with mixed essences are often going to be scary... And they're going to be dangerous. They're especially going to be dangerous if the essence that, of this thing that looks like a human is secretly a rat or, or a cockroach or some other kind of, or a rabid dog, something that spreads disease. And that gets really dangerous because not only- Because you've got to exterminate them. Exactly, exactly. You know, what, what are your responses to the zombie bear? Either you run away from it or you destroy it. And all the horror movies with monsters, they all end with the monster being destroyed somehow. That's the ultimate- you know, way out here, the redemption. But of course, when it's real life, when it's politics, what you're saying to one group is that other group that looks like you, isn't like you. It's a hidden threat. It's a diseased animal posing as a human. And not only is
0: it a threat to you, is it something that you should destroy? You have a duty to destroy it. And that's not just like every side in war propaganda. You also... See the same kind of language when people are talking about uh, anti-immigrant rhetoric. Like there's always a language of swarming.
1: Yeah, exactly. So so there was outrage in the UK not too long ago. uh, This woman, Katie Hopkins, who's now sort of been banished from our shores and sent somewhere else. um, I think to to over to the United States. Um, What what, she was a a sort of outrageous sort of kind of equivalent of a shock jock, but she described um, uh, Syrian refugees as as like cockroaches. Uh. And and this did set off an enormous reaction against her because we remember what that kind of discourse led to, but it was no accident that she went for immigrants who were one of the most reviled and politically beat up on groups in you know in British political discourse. Now she didn't get away yeah. with that, but but it was
0: so is is, easy Drac- for is her Dracula to make like the away. first fear of uh, the Eastern European immigrant?
1: Well, you know, he turns up in Whitby in his coffin from his. but you know, <laughs> yeah. There's certainly something about the Roman. So it's age, undercutting the local workmen, there. Yeah. <laughs> indeed. Um, but there's definitely something, something there in in, in that Dracula example, um, mm-hmm. and and of course, what makes this so dangerous is that it's very powerful to our psychologies because we're comfortable with the idea that essences are hidden and that things aren't always what they appear. We're very e- we find it easy to fall into the trap of believing mm-hmm. these kinds of stories. The Dehumanization is dangerous, not just because it can lead to genocide, which historically we know it can, but because it can get a grip on many, many people's minds. It's not going to be uh-huh. unique to say just the Germans in the 1930s. Like you said, Allied propaganda used many of the same tropes. Now, the Allies never descended into full-scale dehumanization and genocide, but it was very useful to uh-huh. depict... Well, not, not, not on the scale of the death camps. But the reason it was so useful to describe the Japanese as less than human is because it's much easier to kill them if they're not really human. So that's why dehumanizing discourse is, is, finds a political purpose. And that's when we get from, you know, not just the fiction of monsters, but turning people into monsters.
0: That's super interesting because in the movies, in gothic horror and novels, uh, we've identified a kind of way to make monsters right? How do you make a count scarier? You make him turn into a bat and drink blood. He's more animalistic. How do you make a bear scarier? You turn into a zombie. How do you make a doll scarier? You bring him alive like Chucky. And so there's just this trick of crossing essences, making things uncanny, and that makes it more disgusting and horrifying. And uh, it turns out that when it comes time to make political propaganda, you can do exactly the same thing uh, about other people. And I guess you would probably say that if you're playing with this mechanism, you want to be careful about what kind of monsters you create.
1: Yeah. And, and you know, if we're going to learn anything from, from our histories, it's that we do really need to be careful with what we do when we're creating monsters. Um, and, of course, it's no accident that many of the monsters in history have been tied to tropes of persecuted minority groups. Um, the, the, so psychological essentialism is really interesting and really wacky, but probably also something we need to be really careful about. And we need to be aware that it has this pull in our minds and in the wrong hands and in the wrong historical circumstances, it's going to be about more than just creating, you know, Dracula and zombie bears. It can, it can go in an altogether more sinister direction. It's not just a kind of weird titillation of the imagination. It's it's
0: dangerous. Okay. And I think that's probably a good place to leave it. So uh, thank you, Paul Sagar of King's College London for coming on and um, celebrating the spooky season with us.
1: Yeah, well, thanks for having me, Cliff, and uh, stay safe out there.
0: (laughs) Thank you, as usual, to Sep for editing help and for episode art. Thank you to Clayton Tapp for his amazing Halloween remix of the theme music he made in the first place, and also to... Abby, Dan Walski, Rashul Zucci, and Bill Rogers, all of whom decided to support this podcast on Patreon. Thank you, I appreciate it. You're really helping me keep it going. And if you listener would like to support us on Patreon, head over to their website, Patreon.com/slash GoodInTheory, and they will tell you how to send us money. If you don't want to send money right now, or you've already sent us all your money and you're looking for something else to do to help the show go over to Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast player that you use and leave us a rating and review. Big shout out to Apple Podcasts reviewer A. Crazy Newfie, who sent a five-star review entitled, Listener Beware, Side Effects May Include a Sudden Interest in Philosophy. The review reads, This man made me take a philosophy class in university my first semester. I now have to write a 15-page term paper. Thanks Cliff. Well, you're very welcome. A first year philosophy class can be a lot of fun and 15 page papers are where you do all the learning anyway. And thank you for your review. Good luck with the course.